All right, church family, we are back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to read verses 16 through 18, uh, but we're going to, I'm going to be a little bit bold this morning. Uh, two weeks ago, we preached uh, two words. Uh, last week, we preached three words, and we're going to be ambitious and go for four words this morning and just examine Paul's exhortation to, in everything, give thanks. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to read verses 16 through 18. And let me encourage you to memorize these verses. They're pretty easy to memorize. Uh, and we'll read that together. We'll pray and we'll jump right in. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord uh, in prayer. Gracious Father, Lord, um, I pray that the desire of your people as they hear this message is indeed to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and to in everything give thanks, Lord. Um, as we've already heard this morning, um, as we've heard through hopefully the songs that have been sung and through the scripture that we've heard read, through the prayers that have been prayed, we are a people that have every reason to rejoice, every reason to pray, every reason to give thanks in all circumstances. Father, I pray that you might help us widen our gaze a little bit this morning to see the centrality of being a people who give thanks to their covenant God in light of redemptive history. Father, I feel, Lord, entirely too frail for this task that's before me this morning. So I come even more aware of my need for your grace. But I pray with gratitude that this is the reality every Sunday morning when we gather. Every time we attempt to teach your word, we're completely dependent upon you meeting with us. You opening our eyes and ears to the truth that is revealed within your word. Your Holy Spirit then impressing this word upon our hearts. Transforming us more and more into the image of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, would you do that work among us, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever heard this expression before used by parents toward their children? I heard this expression recently, and it's one of those things I can't believe I've never heard before. I'm always looking for really cool dad phrases, which, which by the way, is an oxymoron. There's no such thing as a cool dad phrase. Uh, they're corny dad phrases, but I'm really working on, on my dad persona. I've got the dad bod down. Uh, so I'm working on my dad catchphrases. And I heard this one the other day and I thought it was brilliant. See if you've heard it before. You get what you get and don't throw a fit. I'd never heard that before. And I think it's awesome, right? I suppose that's a very good and helpful thing for us parents to, to live by and to say on a continual basis. Why? Because we know that grumbling and complaining can be one of the hardest character flaws to overcome can also be one of the hardest character flaws to correct. I mean, constantly grumbling about this or complaining about that, the thanklessness, the ingratitude, it almost seems constant. And then on top of that, we are to instruct our children against this. I don't know about you, but I've become painfully aware the longer I've been a parent that I often grumble and complain. And I am most aware of my grumbling and complaining at the very exact time that I am reprimanding my children about their grumbling and complaining. 
I'm, I'm doing the exact thing I'm just reprimanding them about, just doing it in a more adult way. Well, the Apostle Paul's encouragement to us from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 this morning is to, in everything, give thanks. Giving thanks is the exact opposite of grumbling and complaining. So that's the exhortation we have before us this morning. In everything, give thanks. And so, of course, our big idea is going to be just that a little bit rewarded, right? Uh, we are to give thanks. We ought to give thanks in all circumstances. That's the big idea for this morning's text. We ought to give thanks in all circumstances. And I actually want to begin this morning by considering this exhortation in light of the totality of redemption history as it's revealed to us. And, and I'm certain that as we consider human history, what we actually see is a history of ingratitude. A history of grumbling and, and complaining. And so I want to begin there uh, the history of the human race is a history of ingratitude. And so let's examine a history of ingratitude. Of course, it wasn't that way at the beginning. Despite what you may have learned in high school, God created this world and he did so in six days. On the sixth day, he created man and woman. He placed them in the garden and they were created happy and holy. They had hearts that expressed thanksgiving to God. The offering even that they were to give was to be a thanks offering. Yeah, even in the garden, Adam and Eve were supposed to give a sacrifice, but it was not a blood sacrifice. It was a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. But of course, we know what happened. Adam and Eve did not remain in that happy and holy condition. Thus, we have first and foremost the ingratitude of our first parents. Let's examine the ingratitude of our first parents. They demonstrated profound, earth-shattering, history-altering ingratitude when they despised what God had given them and reached out for what he had not given them. And really, here's, here's my suggestion. Here's my assertion this morning. And that is the sin of our first parents was actually an act of ingratitude. I probably don't, we probably don't disagree with that, but we don't often think about the fall of man, the sin of Adam and Eve in that light, do we? We describe it in terms of pride, right? That they had set themselves up to be God. We describe it in terms of disbelief, that they failed to believe what God had said. Therefore, they ate uh, the fruit, the forbidden fruit. And of course, I don't disagree with either of those. But I believe I can prove to you and show you that the sin of our first parents could accurately be described as an act of ingratitude. In fact, here's really the argument of the day that I'm going to present to you, and it's this. All sin is ingratitude. All sin is ingratitude. Uh, think about it. It is not possible for you to really give thanks to God while transgressing his law. It is really not possible for you to give thanks to God and not to love the Lord your God with all your heart, not to love your neighbor as yourself. See, thankfulness and disobedience are incongruent with one another. It would be like a child coming up to his parents and saying, oh, I'm so grateful to have you as my parent while simultaneously disobeying and disrespecting that parent. 
Would you believe that your child is really grateful and thankful for you if they just gave you lip service of thanks and then continuously dishonored and disobeyed you? No, you would rightly state that your child's actions contradict your child's words of, of gratitude. Uh, not only that, but we see throughout Scripture that disobedience is often described in the Bible in terms of grumbling and complaining. Ingratitude is a basic component of sin as it's revealed in redemptive history. Redemptive history, that, that the history of God's redeeming word that he has revealed to his people. And so, again, let's jump right in and examine ingratitude in light of redemptive history. Adam and Eve, after they had sinned against God, they were uh, they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And, and throughout all the history we have recorded in the Old Testament, what we see from then on is people continuously responding to their faithful creator with ingratitude, with grumbling and complaining. And so because of the sin of our first parents, we are now introduced to the ingratitude of all humankind. The ingratitude of all humankind. We've examined the ingratitude of our first parents. Now let's look at the ingratitude of all humankind. Speaking of humankind, in Romans chapter 1, Paul writes this, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's Romans chapter 1, verse 21. See, the starting point is agreeing with Scripture that the primary occupation of people is supposed to be the worship of God. You have got to start there to understand that all sin is really ingratitude. We are meant to give him thanks, to honor him. Paul's point is that people have declined to fulfill this obligation the reality is, as far as the need to express thanks, we consider it a common courtesy to say thank you when someone gives us a gift, don't we? Uh, we consider it common etiquette to give thanks to our benefactors, to those who support us, to those who help us. This is ubiquitous. It's found everywhere. It's a common response that is due to those who receive things that they have not earned or merited. You know, like life. So listen, if you know God's word, you know that after our first parents fell into sin, all of mankind fell with them into sin and misery, and yet God is still their creator. Even if you don't claim to be a Christian, even if you don't claim to know God, you suppress this truth, and despite your suppressing of this truth, you are still obliged to give God thanks. To live a life of gratitude to the one who created you, to the one who sustains you, and the one who has provided every good gift for you. See, the original purpose remains intact, even after the fall. The reality is, the reason for giving God thanks has only grown or increased exponentially since the fall. Do you know why? Why? Because God postponed judgment. 
Listen, if life in the garden was a gracious gift and the proper response to that gracious gift was to offer a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, how much more appropriate is it now that we have people who have not trusted in Christ and who are at enmity with God? In fact, all of humankind is at enmity with God right now and yet God patiently waits. God is long-suffering with them in their sin and disobedience. God postponed judgment. In fact, in the garden, what we see is an incredible promise being made. God promising to come and overcome sin and the consequences of sin on their behalf. He demonstrated unfathomable mercy and grace. Friends, the reason for giving God thanks is not less since the fall. It's more. <laughs> There are less reasons to give God thanks since the fall of mankind. There are more reasons to give him thanks. And listen, I'm, I'm aware that sin and the consequences of sin has made life bitter and difficult for many. We know sin and the consequences of sin has brought about trials, tribulation, and suffering. It is a reality that impinges upon every one of our lives. But I would remind you that this, this was not God's doing. The only reason that sin did not immediately bring its full and just punishment, that is the wrath of God, is because of God's infinite mercy and immeasurable grace. His plan to redeem his people through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So if Adam and Eve were to be thankful from the beginning to the one who gave them life, how much more should we be thankful, the enemies of God, thank him for continuing to grant us life in everything we need? But if you're familiar with redemptive history, you will know without me telling you that thanksgiving has not been given. Cain does not demonstrate thanksgiving, but instead kills his brother Abel out of jealousy. Humanity as a whole fails to give God thanks as their creator, but instead in Genesis 6, we read every thought and intention of mankind, of their hearts, were evil all the time. Even Israel, God's chosen people, that holy nation, failed to express gratitude to their creator. In fact, as we move throughout redemptive history, let's go ahead and examine that now. Let's examine the ingratitude of the nation of Israel. The ingratitude of the nation of Israel. Those blessed recipients of God's intimate care and special provision consistently demonstrated grumbling and complaining against their Redeemer. In fact, in Exodus chapter 14, Exodus chapter 14, God had just rescued them out of Egypt. He brought them out of Egypt. They had not yet crossed uh, the Red Sea. Uh, and what is their response to God? They grumbled and complained against them because he did not save them enough. He didn't save them again. Why? Pharaoh's coming. Yes, you saved us one time, but you did not save us enough. So we refuse to give you thanks as our God. We refuse in this circumstance to give you thanks. So God graciously and patiently does not respond to their ingratitude with wrath, which is really what uh, could and should have happened at that time. It's deserved, isn't it? But instead, he saves them. He parts the Red Sea, they walk through on dry ground, and he brings about destruction upon their enemy. So we read in Exodus chapter 14, 11, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Does that sound like giving thanks to you? 
And no, but so eventually Moses is able to lead them in a song of praise and thanksgiving after they're rescued after the Red Sea. But, but what's fascinating is immediately after the conclusion of that song of thanksgiving and praise, we find Israel grumbling and complaining against God again. This time it's because they have nothing to drink. They grumble and complain against the Lord saying, you brought us out here into the middle of the desert heat and you forgot the water bottles. So they come to a source of water and they say, oh, the Lord has provided. And they take a drink of the water and they go, oh, it's bitter. What is this? We can't drink this. Oh, we are certainly going to die again. Doesn't sound like giving thanks. Sounds like a whole lot of grumbling and complaining. So the Lord graciously and mercifully supplies them with sweet water to replace the bitter water. He provides 12 springs, in fact, of fresh water. He provides 70 palm trees that they might have shelter. And so certainly at this point, they will give him the thanks he deserves in every circumstance and situation, right? Well, in Exodus chapter 16, verses 2 and 3, we read, And the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, We had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. We sat next to pots of meat and when we ate bread to our full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. God has delivered them from their enemies. He's provided drink and now they're grumbling about the food. Again, the irony is really striking, by the way, because in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, you'd find that it's actually the grumbling and complaining about slavery that provoked the salvation of the Lord. The slavery was so burdensome, the people were overwhelmed by the harshness of Pharaoh, and God saves them. They are no more content in the presence of God, having been saved from slavery, than they were back in Egypt. In fact, they prefer to go back. Grumbling, by the way, hear this, I need you to hear this. Grumbling, by the way, is always against the Lord. You notice most of these, if actually you read most of them, they're addressed to Moses, uh, but God's revelation does not leave us wondering whether or not they're actually complaining against Moses and Aaron, but also the Lord. Read with me Exodus chapter 16, verses 7 and 8. The Bible says, And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints against the Lord. But what are we that you complain against us? Also Moses said, This shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening. And in the morning, bread to the full, for the Lord hears your complaints which you make against him. And what are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. There's a whole lot of grumbling going on there. And all of their grumbling and complaining is ultimately against the Lord. Friends, as is ours. Uh, You can uh, call it whatever you will, direct it to wherever you will, justify it however you will, blame it on whomever you will. When you grumble and you complain, you ultimately are doing it against the Lord, period. Now we can actually go on with several more examples. We'll see a couple more later. We could go on with several more examples of Israel grumbling and complaining against the Lord uh, throughout redemptive history. Um, But I return to my assertion. All sin is ingratitude. Um, The ingratitude as we see it throughout redemptive history. I know we've just taken one peek into one portion 
of redemptive history, but again, it's ubiquitous. Everyone engages in it, and, and no one properly gives thanks to the Lord. Even though it's the responsibility of all humankind, and especially those who God calls to himself. Here's the point. Everybody is a grumbler and complainer. All people, all of them. This is the clear and present danger we have before us this morning. And so when we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I'm actually going to ask you to turn there with me, Paul uses some of these instances and examples uh, that I was reading about to warn those who have trusted in Christ not to be idolaters, which is the context, and specifically not to grumble. And so let's examine Paul's warning against ingratitude to the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now we're going to uh, read Paul's warning against ingratitude to the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's go ahead and start in verse 6. The Bible says, Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That incident is referring to that story of the golden calf that I hope you're familiar with uh, from the Old Testament, the book of Exodus. Then verse 8 says, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. That's referring to what took place when Balaam, the prophet, blessed Israel against the wishes of the king who had hired him to curse Israel. And Israel's response is immediately after that blessing, the Israelite men engage in sexual immorality with the Moabite women. And then Phineas comes and does his thing, if you remember, and takes care of that. Verses 9 and 10, though, is really where I want to draw our attention to. It says, nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also were tempted. And were destroyed by serpents, nor complain, as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, verse 9 is referring to what took place in Numbers chapter 21. I want to read a little bit of that uh, for you, but ultimately what we find is God's people grumbling and complaining against him again. This time, it's because they were being impatient. God had uh, made them take the long way. They had to travel around Edom. And so in Numbers chapter 21, verse 5, it says this, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water and our soul loathes this worthless bread. Emphasis added, by the way, but sound familiar? That the tune never changes, does it? And then verse 6, So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. So then the Lord instructs Moses after Moses had interceded on behalf of the people to build a bronze staff with the head of a serpent on it, and, and everyone who looked upon that bronze staff would be healed. Do you remember that story? Of course, this is foreshadowing Jesus, Right? Uh, that all who look upon Jesus with eyes of faith will be saved from the serpent, the grip of Satan. Salvation will come through faith. But the point I want to make on this whole thing is that God's people are consistently grumbling and complaining. And, and Paul points back to them and says, do not test Christ like this. And who is Paul speaking to, by the way? Paul's not speaking to the world. He's speaking specifically to the church, to the saints at Corinth. They serve as an example, Paul says. And really what I just read to you out of the book of Numbers uh, is the very thing we must examine ourselves about. 
Let us not be found testing Christ by our grumbling and complaining. Think about it. Uh, They grumbled and complained because they got sick of manna. We have the true bread from heaven, Christ himself, by his spirit abiding in us. They complained because they didn't have enough water, yet Christ came saying, you have fountains of living water flowing through you, from you. John says this was referring to the Spirit because the Spirit had not yet come, but he has now. He abides in his people. Do you hear what I'm saying? If grumbling and complaining was wrong because they were grumbling and complaining about God's physical provision, how much more is it for the people who've received God's Spirit and salvation in Christ? See, this is what we do. When we read stories like this, we make funny voices at the complaints of Israel and we say, oh my goodness, I can't believe after all the things they've seen, they're still grumbling and complaining. Friends, that was pre the crucifixion and the day of Pentecost. We grumble and complain after seeing their complaints After seeing and knowing Christ has died for us and that he's risen again and after being filled with his spirit, cleansed, baptized by his spirit, and we still grumble and complain. We got no place to talk about Israel's grumbling and complaining as if we're any better. Listen, Paul says specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, he says this, nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. You know what Paul's referring to in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 10? He's referring to that event uh, where they heard the report of the spies and doubted the Lord. Is the Lord really able to deliver us into the promised land once again? You know, their complaining is basically always the same complaint, isn't it? Why did you take us out of Egypt? We were fine in Egypt. You took us out here to die. Do you see the picture of grumbling and complaining? Friends, it's always against the Lord and it's always a failure to believe in the promises of God that he is really able to provide, that he is really able to bring to reality the hope we have in Christ. Paul warns us, do not grumble as they did. Do not doubt that the Lord is able to bring to completion that which he began in us. Here's the reality. I think we often, in our own subtle adult Christian way, we say to the Lord, you know what, Lord, it it was pretty good when I was back in Egypt. Things were going well for me before this whole picking up my cross thing and following your son. And, And listen, none of us are really bold enough to say it out loud like that. I know that. But don't you see that's what grumbling and complaining is? You don't have to state it like that to say it anyway. Here's the point from 1 Corinthians 10. Israel grumbled about water and bread. How much more should we be disciplined if we grumble and complain that the Holy Spirit of God is dwelling within us? The access to the Father by the one Spirit through the flesh of Christ. It's why in everything we give thanks. It's why we cannot grumble and complain as Paul writes to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2 verses 14 through 15. And if you grew up in a Christian household, you probably sang a song that sounded a lot like this. Do all things without grumbling and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast the word of life. 
He writes to Colossians in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, do everything giving thanks. Again, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 and verse 20. But be filled with the Spirit, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then, of course, we have our verse in 18a, in everything give thanks. So, friends, we've examined the ingratitude of our first parents, the ingratitude of all humankind, the ingratitude of the nation of Israel. But, oh, praise God for the perfect thank offering of Jesus Christ. Let's examine now that, the perfect thank offering of Jesus Christ. Listen, how can we have Jesus as our perfect thank offering and not in everything give thanks? Don't miss that. His life was the thank offering. You know that, right? Just as Adam, as the covenant head, was to offer himself as a thank offering with no need for a sin offering before the fall, Jesus offers his life of obedience as the thank offering that is our obligation. He did not grumble against God. He was taken into the wilderness for 40 days, just as the Israelites were taken into the wilderness for 40 years. And yet he did not complain that God's spirit had led, them there, led him there to kill him. He never said, I was fine where I was. Why did you bring me out here to die? Even after not eating or drinking for 40 days, when tempted by the devil, he is still able to respond. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He does not grumble and complain against God for allowing his enemy to pursue him into the wilderness. He does not see Satan and cry out, Lord, what have you done? Why have you brought me here? Instead, he said, man is to worship God and God alone. He entrusted himself to the Father. Jesus' heart never wavered from ingratitude or from gratitude. Jesus never ceased giving thanks in thought, word, and deed. And here's the crazy thing. Try to grasp this. If there was ever anyone who had a reason to complain, it was Jesus. Remember, he was taken from slavery in Egypt and then led out into the wilderness. He left the riches of heaven and made himself poor that you might be rich. Son of God, clothed himself with our weakness, with our infirmities. He faced our temptations and he did so without a single complaint. He did not complain when they ripped out his beard. He did not complain when they mocked him. He did not complain when they punched him in the face or they hung him to the cursed tree. But instead, with the joy that was set before him, he endured the shame of the cross. His obedience unto death was the greatest expression of thanksgiving that's ever been demonstrated. There was never a greater thank offering than the life Jesus lived, just like that, uh, there, will, there was never will be a sin offering like the death that Jesus died. Church, Jesus did not simply set us an example. He bought us, purchased us, redeemed us. He created a new humanity, if you will. That's what we are. This new covenant community is not a grumbling and complaining community. It's not who we are. 
It's why Paul exhorts the Thessalonians, despite the fact they were being persecuted, facing many trials, many tribulations, so much that Paul actually feared whether they were still standing in the faith. And yet he writes to them and says, in everything give thanks. I mean, it is is crazy that we are deceived to grumble and complain in light of the lives we live that are so cushy and comfortable. Yes, even now, it's mind-boggling. So we praise God for the perfect thank offering of Jesus Christ. Because without it, friends, we'd have no hope. I want us uh, to to move on specifically now to look at our text. I I want us to look at this exhortation of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The exhortation of gratitude in 1 Thessalonians 5. With redemptive history as our context and as our guide, I want to look at now the practical outworking of this command that Paul gives. First, I want to point out that it is in everything give thanks, not for everything give thanks. It's a subtle difference, but it's a huge difference. It is in everything give thanks, not for everything give thanks. That's critical for us to understand. Paul does not exhort the saints, saints, give thanks for everything, but give thanks in everything. Meaning, we're not sadists. We do not cry out, oh, thank you, Lord, may I have another. That is not our posture. When our sin or the sin of others causes suffering, when the sin-stained world brings about suffering, we're not grateful for that. Our, Our God is not the author of sin, so we don't thank him for that. We do not thank God for every miserable circumstance, but we thank him in the midst of every trial and tribulation. In the midst of it. We thank him because he is our God and we are his people. Thanks be to Jesus Christ. We thank him because he loves us. His love is better than the greatest earthly joy. We thank him because he is among us. He is present and his presence is sweeter than the greatest earthly pleasure. That's why we give him thanks in everything. Friends, this is so much more than just bowing your head and saying thank you. This is not the quick prayer you shoot up whenever you are about to stuff your face full of food. This is not simply a verbal expression. This is a life expression. Giving thanks in all things is as much about our attitudes and actions as it is our words. Say that again. Giving thanks in all things is as much about our attitudes and actions as it is our words. See, some of us even just have a problem with the words, (laughs) That's how far we are from this. Where we talked about that last week, praying without ceasing. We, we struggle to even get the words up there. But, but really giving thanks in all things, it, it's not just about your words. It's about your attitudes and actions in the midst of that. Our lives are to be a sacrifice of thanksgiving. We are to be thank offerings. That's what our lives are to be marked as. We are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12. In light of God's great mercies, it is an appropriate act of worship for God's people. Knowing God through Christ should compel us to, in everything, give thanks with lives of faithful obedience. That's the exhortation. Here is the challenge of verse 18a. The challenge is disbelief, discontentment, and pride. Why do we struggle to give thanks? Because we don't believe we're not content and we're proud. The three primary things that undermine the attitude in a life given over to thanksgiving toward God 
If we're honest, I think we often fail to believe the promises of God. Disbelief. We fail to believe that he's actually working in and through all things to accomplish his will. Which is good for those who love him. For those who are called according to his purpose. Israel, on the bank of the Red Sea, they grumbled because they did not believe that God could save them. On the bank of the Jordan, the same, they did not believe that God could bring them into the promised land. Let us not do the same. So we struggle because of disbelief. We also struggle because of discontentment. We are quite frankly not satisfied with the promises of God, if we're honest. More specifically, we're often not satisfied with God. Israel loathed the manna, the bread from heaven. Let us, let us not loathe the true bread from heaven, our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. So we struggle. The challenge is disbelief. The challenge is discontentment, but pride. If we're honest, we don't like how we receive the promises of God. Here's the reality. Real gratitude Real thankfulness is incredibly humbling. It recognizes that you are a receiver. That you're receiving that which you do not deserve. Listen, you don't give thanks for your paycheck, do you? I mean, you may be thankful, but but does anyone here listening to this write a thank you card to your boss every time you get paid? Why? Well, because you earned that. You merited that. Listen, the only thing we have earned and merited is God's wrath and punishment, yet what we receive is grace and mercy. Even those of you who continue to suppress the truth and deny Christ, even now you are receiving God's gift and you ought to thank him. If you're breathing air, you're receiving a gift from your creator. True thanksgiving is humbling. And when we rightly perceive and believe that our lives our gifts, that God's promises are true and our hope in Christ is sure, we will begin to spend our life as thank offerings. When we grow in our delight in God, we cherish the gift of his presence and desire nothing more than the consummation of his work of redemption, we will in everything give thanks because everything is accomplishing his plan. When we begin to estimate the depth of our sin the weakness of our flesh, and the utter dependency on God we have for every good, every grace, every mercy, our lives will overflow with praise and thanksgiving. And and friends, that's really my hope and prayer for us this morning. I know this this has been rough, and I've often known this about my preaching when, when, when I feel like it can be a little curt and compassionless. Often it's because it's, I'm preaching on something I actively struggle with. And I feel like that's the case. And yet God has has done a work in my heart this week. And really what I want to do is I just want to finish our time, conclude with the words we're about to sing. In fact, if you're listening to this, you have this on your playlist. It's the last song. We've already sang it once. It's our new song of the month. I want to draw your attention to these lyrics. I, I know we often sing. And when we sing, we don't even think about the words that we're singing, but we should. And this song we're about to sing is a prayer of thanksgiving. It's thanking the Lord Jesus for the salvation we have in him. Here's the lyrics. It says this. By your perfect sacrifice, I've been brought near. Your enemy, you've made your friend. 
pouring out the riches of your glorious grace, your mercy and your kindness, know no end. Your blood has washed away my sin, Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied, Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. Let's pray together. Jesus, we do thank you. We thank you that you left the riches and glory of heaven to make yourself poor. That you willingly came and offered the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving that we are obliged to offer. You were obedient even unto death for our sake as your people. Now we ask that you would cause our hearts to more and more overflow with praise and thanksgiving. To remember your deeds and celebrate them. To in everything give thanks knowing that all power and authority has been given to you, that you reign supreme in heaven. You will bring to completion that which you have begun. You will bring us into the promised land. Jesus, thank you. We thank you and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Church, as we begin our time of invitation, I I just want you really, if you're a Christian, I want you to be able to sing the song, our final song with with conviction and with truth, that this would be a confession of your heart, that you are truly thankful for the Lord. And if that's the case, then we certainly must understand that the only reason we are even able to be thankful for the Lord is because of the perfect thank offering that was offered on our behalf, Jesus Christ. And so let us together strive to live our lives as a thank offering. We truly have every reason to give thanks. And maybe you're listening to this and you don't think you have a reason to give thanks. You are one of those who is suppressing the truth about God in unrighteousness. If that's the case, please hear that thank offering that Jesus lived and died on your behalf. Receive that free gift of salvation with repentance and faith. And today, you can have a thankful heart. I've been saved Um, longer than I can do the appropriate math, 26 years. And I think uh, the day my heart was most thankful was the day when I was six years old and gave my life to Christ. You can experience unceasing thankfulness to the Lord today if you would but repent of your sins and place your faith in him. I'm praying for you. I love you, church family. We're always here Uh, to be with you, to hear from you, to encourage you. And I pray that though this may have seemed harsh and hard today, that it was an encouragement to you and to your heart and that God will use it for his glory. Thank you, church family. We love you. Hope to see you soon. God bless.